Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new Securing Bridges podcast. You're about to join Alyssa Miller as she sits down with senior and executive security leaders to share stories of success and failure while working across business teams. It's time to build and secure the bridge to the business. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hello once again. Here we are. It's I'm back in Studio 1A. I'm not on the road this week for a change. It's Securing Bridges. I'm Alyssa Miller, and it is great to have you all here with us today. Um, boy, I think we're on like episode seven now. This is crazy. It's We've had so many really good guests. I'm already losing count, and that is totally okay with me, and this week is no different. So, we're going to dive right in. We're, we're, we're securing that bridge between security and the business. How are we building those bridges? How are we connecting? How are we bringing those conversations in a way that we can influence those that are outside of our little security sphere? That's what we talk about every week here. And this week, probably one of the, I, this is like such a perfect opportunity to speak to somebody who's got a lot of different viewpoints on exactly that topic. It's Andy Ellis. Andy, how are you? I'm doing fantastic today, Alyssa. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming, and it's an honor to have you here. This is this is one of those moments where Alyssa feels some really serious imposter syndrome, so bear with me, folks, but we'll be good. Um, but uh, so, Andy, just in case some people haven't heard your name before, which would be really bizarre because you've been doing a lot of things, but hey, you know, some people are new to yep. the industry or whatever. Can you just uh, introduce yourselves a little bit? Tell folks a little bit about uh, your story. Sure. So Andy Ellis, I started in the United States Air Force doing information warfare for Central Command back in the late 90s. Uh, Went to Akamai, spent 20 years there building the security practice and doing many of the security products. Uh, Retired from there uh, about a year ago. And now I'm doing the gig work. Uh, except, you know, the executive side, I think we call it portfolio. Uh, <laughs> so I am part-time at Orca Security as their advisory CISO. Uh, I am part-time at YL Ventures as an operating partner. And then I have my own consulting firm, Duha, which does leadership training. And I am currently uh, writing a book on leadership. I love it. So, so just a few things. I mean, if my guests were wondering why we asked you to be here, I think you just answered it, right? <laughs> I mean, th- this is exactly the types of things that we want to understand. And there's so much that we could jump into here. I mean, the, the leadership side, of course, is always an important thing, even if you're not in leadership yet. That's the thing yep. I, I try to get a lot of people to understand. But, um, and, you know, the, the, the uh, you know, the venture side, uh, the work you're doing, with um you know with different startups and stuff i think is going to be really interesting too but if you don't mind can we kind of just start about your current role at orca and, sure. and what 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 does that advisory CISO situation even mean in that sense because i think that that term even sometimes has different flavors it, to it It has very different flavors right so for some companies an advisory CISO is you know somebody in marketing who's sort of been given the title because their job is like go sit on webinars Um, And in fact, that is much of my job. I just came at it from being a CISO rather than being in the marketing side. Uh, Sometimes it's people who are sort of consulting CISOs. So your customers need to talk to someone 
And this is somebody who will come in and say, hey, here's what your problems are. And oh, buy more of our t stuff. Um, I'm doing probably more on the marketing side. So I run a podcast, which is Cloud Security Reinvented, where I interview people who've been senior in the industry for a long time, partly to understand how they've seen security evolve. So there's nothing there that really directly benefits Orca, except it's eyeballs, it's Orca sponsored. You know, Maybe people pivot over to some of our content. Um, I write blog posts. Uh, I have an op-ed in CSO Online, uh, which if you haven't read, it's a straight up security. It's where I dish the things I probably couldn't dish if I was working for a publicly traded company. The most recent <laughs> one is uh, the, the security user experience, SUX, the most self-descriptive acronym ever where I go and uh, commit gift card fraud against myself and see how all of the retailers who are supposed to help me say, stop buying gift cards, actually screw it up. Um, it's, it's fascinating to see how badly we treat the, not just the security professionals who buy our technologies, but the users who have to interact with our processes. And we don't have a good vision here. So that's sort of the things I do. I'm out a public face of the company and I do some uh, light product management okay. where I bring in and I'm the voice of the CISO so they can show me things six months before it's going to launch and I can give you know straight talk to engineers about how I would receive it as the buyer. Yep, right. <laughs> sometimes it's like, oh my God, I can't believe you're doing that. And sometimes it's like, wow, I've been waiting for somebody to give me a view that looked like that for decades. That actually sounds like an amazing job. Like, I love that part of it. Like, hey, it yeah, so much fun. tell us what do you think? Do our products suck or are they really yeah. good? I, that's awesome. But you said something else in there that's really interesting. Um, you'd mentioned the, the gift card scam that you pulled on yourself. And, yep. you know, okay, the retailer is kind of falling down and not doing a good job. Um, where, I mean, if, as you look at that, what do you think that comes from both from the retailer side, but also... What, what are we missing or what should the retailers be doing to prevent those kinds of things? Is it even on the retailers to try to prevent those kinds of things from happening in the first place? So I don't know if it should be on the retailer. So I'm not going to really answer that question yet. Although maybe there is there should be a conversation there. But I think where it comes from is the people who design security processes are often really disconnected from how those processes actually touch human beings. So you know, one of the examples is I went to CVS and I bought two gift cards and I went to the self-checkout lane. You know, I scan in the first one and it says, I, the first warning that I get is, be careful throwing this into your bag because you don't want it to break. Which doesn't apply. I was buying an Apple gift card. It's a piece of paper, but if it had been a Visa gift card, okay, I can see, right, that's an issue one. And then okay. the second one is the normal gift card thing, a wall of text that says, beware of gift card scams. But... It was kind of vague, and I'm like, okay, but at least there's something. Scan the second gift card, and the machine locks up and says, please wait for a store manager to come over or something like that. So I'm like, I have this moment where I'm like, this is really exciting. And you can imagine the security person, the anti-fraud person who wrote this process, who said, look, if somebody tries to buy multiple gift cards, we want that employee to have a conversation with them that just says, hey, I just want to make sure you're buying this for something legitimate and not an IRS scam. Like, that's probably what they wrote. Right. Here's, what, here's what happened. A very harried manager of the store who was trying to deal with another customer comes running over with their card, like dealing with the customer, reaches over, scans their card on my checkout and walks, presses the button to advance through and walks away. 
And I had this realization, <clears throat> excuse me, it's exactly like what happens when you report phishing in your company. 100%. That's right? exactly what I was just thinking. And, and I actually had this where I was the CISO who reported a phishing event and I got back this form letter from a low paid employee in a low cost center that basically was lecturing me about how to detect phishing. And at no point did they say, thank you for reporting something that got through our phishing system um, or come back later and say, hey, this was new. We managed to identify your 800 people who got it and kept them from even seeing it. Nothing like that. So there's no incentive for me to ever report again because I got a lecture rather than a thank you. Yeah, which tells me, you know, oh my God, you know, one, we're, we're turning off, as you kind of mentioned, that that behavior, right? We're actually yep. steering people away from the exact behavior we want them to take. Two, I feel like we're actually missing an opportunity to learn and grow from the security side here because, you know, I mean, one of the things that I do at my organization, if they're listening, someone in my security team is going to hate me for this when they hear that this is what I do. Yep. But when I get those stupid emails that are very nondescript with, a link in it. And yeah, I can tell it's probably actually legit, right? It's got yep. some survey monkey link or whatever, you know, whatever thing it is, but it, it's, it's vague enough that like, okay, this is going to encourage, this would be the type of email I would encourage users to get fished. Yep. I send those in and I send them in because the hope in the back of my head, even though I kind of have a feeling this doesn't happen is that somebody's going to see wow, look, we sent a bunch of these emails and all these people reported it even though it was legit. Right. And that's the, you know, I feel like we missed that. Is we that? Missed, we missed that opportunity. And something that I had instituted while I was at Akamai that actually worked really well is every time I got one of those, I would actually call up my peer who was in charge of that and say, you forgot that you're supposed to send an email right in advance of it. So if you're just gonna send a SurveyMonkey link, then I need to have an email sent to every employee from an internal person that says, hey, by the way, you're about to get this third-party survey link. Here's what it is. Here's why we're collecting it. We instituted that practice. And what was fantastic was it actually made our employees become very aggressive at reporting when someone hadn't done that. I love that. Because and that's what you want. That that's the standard, right? That's what you want. Yeah. And we, you know, we tried to encourage people to not send these links from third parties, but most of the third parties don't have a good way to do that. But this was helpful. And what happened was it made our employees recognize that the security team was trying to make their life better. And so they started doing our job with us. Yes. Which is exactly what we're looking for at the end yeah. of the day. Right. I mean, and that's you know, the whole point when I talk about securing bridges and whatever is how, how can I get them to want to do the security thing? I mean, right. we spend so much time feeling like everybody rejects us as the department of no. Because we are the department of no. We do. That, that's still what we do. As much as we say no, I mean, I hear, this is my soapbox. I, I swear, it's, I think it's probably come up on every single episode so far, is I hear these CISOs who say, well, I enable the business. And the minute I hear that now, this is what I've started doing. And I, I got yelled at once for this, but I don't care. <laughs> I stop them and I say, what does enablement mean to you? Yep. And some of the answers are terrifying. Yeah. So here, I'll give you a great answer for us. And I have to give the credit on this one to uh, one of the fellows who worked for me that his organization, you know, built what we called easy path, which was the way to do security architecture reviews faster and easier, All which right. is before then what would happen is somebody would be headed for a product launch and they'd come to our team and we had a bunch of architects and they'd say, I need you to review this. 
and we would like look at our queue and we try to figure out when we could slot them in and it would get really ugly. And sometimes they would show up and they say, oh, by the way, we have a product launch meeting next week. And we're like, come on, you can't do this to us. Um, and so sometimes we would say, hey, if you give us enough money, we will assign an architect to your division and then you get to control their work output so you can decide when to queue up. And that worked for some of our divisions. But then we said, you know, the real thing that we actually care about is not that you fix problems before the product launch, because this is the dirty little secret. They're not going to fix any problems. Doesn't matter how many you find. They have a timeline that says they need to launch on this date. And there is no way that they are going to change anything major before that date. So if you're trying to get them to change things, you're going to say no. They will override you. And everybody in the organization learns that you can be ignored. Yes. But you're just hazing them. It's like, we'll tell you how awful you are in exchange for slowing you down for two weeks. <laughs> so we created a model that said, we will teach your architects how to do safety and security reviews. And our requirement is, is that a different architect than designed it does the security and safety review. But we'll teach them and we reserve the right to revoke their ability to do reviews, which we only did once. We had somebody that we just didn't trust the output. And then you do your own review, you submit the results of the review to us, and we can very quickly verify that you did a reasonable review. You wrote down some sane-looking risks. And the important part is that meant that your architects believed in those risks. It wasn't a third party telling them what they had done wrong. They were saying what they had done wrong. And the next releases got better. But more importantly, it sped everything up. You got to control when you went through the review. So we think it probably saved about 30 days of calendar time because they didn't have to interact with us. That's enabling a business, like a a billion-dollar product line that can advance everything by 30 days. Yeah, and that's that's the point. And see, this this is where I struggle with some of the stories I hear because I'll I'll ask that question and I'll hear a CISO come back and say, well, I reduce risk. Yeah, no, the the only risk reduction that matters because the job of a security team is to enable wiser risk decisions. So actually we reduce no risk at all. At steady state, humans take about the same amount of risk. We've got a ton of data about this that suggests that what's sometimes known as risk homeostasis or the Peltzman effect is real. That if you, if you give people safety tools, they become more dangerous. It's like driving a car. People drive yeah. faster and faster every single year because we give them better and better tools to survive collisions. Now, what's interesting is if you look at the data about you know, vehicle fatalities per mile driven, they went down consistently until the advent of Waze. And it might not be Waze's fault. It could just be correlation. But I think that what happened is people are now driving on roads they would never have driven on before. They used to only stay on major roads when they were elsewhere that, other than their home. But now Waze is like, oh, yeah, go through that residential community. And you don't know what you're doing and you're paying attention to the nav system because the nav system is complex rather than simple. Anyway, coming back to what we do, we help people make better risk choices. So you enable the business by helping them make those risk choices more quickly or by getting out so far ahead of their risk choice that you take away really dangerous things and give them really easy things. Single sign-on is probably one of the best things security teams ever implemented. 
The idea that like, here's a basic module that will do login for you on all of your internal websites and stop implementing login. Like that helps everyone make wiser risk choices. Nobody does password management in application anymore. Right. I mean, all my developers know how to write to an API. Not all my developers know how to securely write an authentication and authorization system. I'm so, pretty sure nobody knows how to do it securely, but let's at least concentrate <laughs> that risk into one in dangerous one place, place. Yes. right? Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's, it's And that's the thing. I mean, I, I think that's what we miss. And again, what did that do for the, the developers? Well, it made their lives easier. It made it faster to deploy because I didn't have to write this from scratch. Security's yep. happy because I don't have people rolling their own encryption or all sorts of other really bizarre things that are bad. And, and that's where I just... I, I get so worried when we lose that. So I'm, it's, it's, I love hearing this from you because it's exactly, I think, the message that we need. And it's not just security leaders. Again, I'm back to that too. Like, you know, yes, I, you know, this show, I talked to a lot of security leaders, but these conversations fit everybody because yep. I don't care if you're working in a sock. You know, Jules Okafor was on here a few weeks ago. Oh, she's fantastic. Oh, she's amazing. I mean, she had some of the outtakes from that. If you get a chance, if you haven't seen that episode, check that out. But, um, you know, one of the things she was talking about is how necessary it is for an analyst working in the sock to be able to have executive level conversations. And yep. yes, even if they're not actually talking to the executive, they're talking to somebody who's going to go talk to an executive and somebody, you have to be able to bring that better message. And that's where I think, you know, maybe, maybe it's a youth of our industry still in security. I don't know, but boy, I wish we could get those messages to some of those people that are you know earlier in their career. Yeah. I think it is tied to the youth of our industry as a whole and to the unicorn way that we grew, right? I mean, I'll use myself and you know, this is not me being egotistical, but I'm a unicorn. Like I can do every job in a security team because I had to do all of them. I was the first security person in the organization. Almost everybody that we hired was hired so that I could do less work or that somebody who'd been hired to give me less work could now do less work. Like that's literally, so I can do every job. But guess what? We should never hire for that ever again. We're done hiring unicorns, but people still look for them. And the problem is if you want to be a unicorn in an environment that doesn't naturally require one, like ours required one 20 years ago, but to become a unicorn, you have to protect work and not let other people see it because yes. you add value and you need to keep that value to yourself. So one piece of value that I provide and I still do provide is I am a fantastic writer. Like I can, you can tell me anything and then tell me who you would like that repeated to. And I can translate it into their language and write them a wonderful note and send it to them. And they will know what's going on. If I don't CC you on that note, you will never learn how to communicate with that other group. So if your SOC analyst writes up their details and sends it to you, and then you summarize it to send it to your boss, make sure the SOC analyst sees how you summarized it. So they can now a start to do that summary themselves makes your job much easier. And now they have a path to develop and grow and say, oh, hey, I wanna get promoted. That's a skill I need to have is how to communicate upwards. And so even just little things like that to remove these barriers to development that exist inside organizations, I think all too often we have taken people who are not good people managers and made them managers. Yeah. 
And so they don't understand that. First of all, being a manager is at least a halftime job. Like, so if you're a, yeah. if you're an individual contributor who becomes a manager and your work output personally does not fall by at least 50%, you are probably not doing right by the people who work for you. Yeah. And that I think is something I, that's an, honestly an expectation I'd love to see people get is look, management. Uh-oh, which of us just uh, locked up? Because I see wow. you. All right. Have you got me back? Because that was interesting. Yeah, I now have you back. So I was trying to figure out which of us had just locked up. I don't know. You you had a brief moment before it might have been me. Okay. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I, I think a lot of people maybe early in their careers when they are individual contributors in particular see that step into leadership as like a it's a sign of clout or you know something right. like that and it's, it's like no you got to understand it, it's yes maybe you know now you have more responsibility so in that sense maybe there's you know that level of change but understand it's just a completely different skill set that you're saying yes. you're going to take on and you are giving up doing some of the other skill sets that maybe really love and you know so when it comes to leadership then and this is actually turned into a perfect segue. I'm kind of, you know, what are those things as somebody who's maybe looking to take that first step from, you know, maybe they're in a lead role today at best and they're looking to really get into a formal leadership. What, what are the things that you see from the work you've done that you'd really like them to understand about making that, that leap? Right. So first I think you need to understand that leadership and management are not synonyms for each other. And you can be a leader without having any formal managerial authority. In fact, you are. The day you show up in your company, you are a leader. The people next to you will look at your behaviors as signals about what is acceptable. And so you get to lead laterally. You get to lead upwards. And it can be very dangerous to lead upwards. You know, if you want to tell your management what you want out of them, I actually can encourage that, but you should know whether or not it's safe. But if you <laughs> want to become a manager... Right? You should recognize that the skills that you need are people skills and process skills. Like the technical skills that you need to be a manager are actually pretty minimal. Um, you should be able to understand what the people are doing who work for you. You should have a vague sense of how to do it better. But great, great managers recognize that they are no longer you know, in the weeds and that their simple models of how to solve problems are wrong. So if somebody who works for you comes and says, that's impossible, you need to believe them. Now, you can make them justify why it's impossible. But the biggest sin I have seen on managers is they say, well, I could do it this way. But that's based on 10-year-old knowledge. And they don't understand all the ways that their simple mental model of how to solve the problem will actually break in reality. Reasonable to challenge the people who work for you to explain it to you. But you have to accept that you have given up that technical authority to your team. And what you now have is the people authority. Like, how are you managing people? Your major role is to figure out how to promote everybody who works for you. And yes. if you are not focused on developing them for career promotion, then you're doing them a disservice. I absolutely love that. And it's, you mentioned like that giving people, I had a, a, a CTO previously who called it freedom scale, right? That, that empowerment, that enablement, whatever you want to call it to go out and solve a problem and solve it in a way that honestly, maybe you didn't think of. Right. And that that's 
I mean, I, I stress that with my teams. It's like, hey, you know what? I this is how I see this. Tell me why I'm wrong and tell me how we're how we can deal with this. And you know, I, I otherwise it just turns into micromanagement. And then yep. why did you hire these really smart people? If you just wanted to tell people how to do it and have them push the buttons, well, you probably could have saved a lot of you know dollars in terms of resource costs there. Yeah. And in fact, my my goal. I recognize that right now you have to often hire entry-level people who have zero skills at all and teach them. And look, you're going to teach them and say, push this button when this happens. But your goal is to eliminate those roles as much as you can. We never will. But you want it to be that you know entry-level means something better than it did two years ago in your organization. So if you have people who are just pushing buttons in a predictable way, you should be automating that. You should be buying technologies that skip that step and get you up one level. If you have people who are copying and pasting from five different data sets, why aren't you automating that data migration so that you don't need that? Because those are not fulfilling jobs where people can develop. And that's, that's actually a really great point there too, as far as when do you buy a tool? Right. I mean, I think a lot of times people look at we want to bring in some cool new technology because it's it's going to give us all this new capability and whatever. Yep. I typically look at tools and you can tell me what you think of this. You can tell me I'm completely full of crap. But a lot when I look for a tool, I'm looking for a tool to do exactly what you just said. I've got some type of process, whatever, that's tedious, yep. that is repetitive that I know could easily be automated. So give me a tool that does that. You know, I mean, I could have people sit down and inspect firewall logs, right? And go through that, but why not buy a tool? Let it do that for me. I could have people sitting there processing every single alert that comes through, but why not have a SIM that can do that for me? And, you know, and that's one of the key things I, I think, you know, for me anyway, that that's always been my strategy is don't buy a tool because it's going to make us better at security. Maybe that's the indirect result, but it's because we're freeing up resources who are doing mindless stuff that we can automate with a tool. Yeah, so I think I would I would say there's three categories and I'm making these up as I go along, so I reserve the right to add a fourth one by the time I'm done. So you just named one category, which is you know automate out scut work. Right. Yeah. There's a second one that's nearby that some people might think is the same, which is automate out correlation work, right? To say, oh, you have things that fire a million alerts. How can you take those alerts and give them context? Sure. Right. And that isn't necessarily scut work. It is often thinking, oh, this machine uh, that this alert is firing on is externally facing and it has, uh, you know, insecurely managed credentials that give access to another system. Like mm-hmm. learning those three things is sometimes hard, but yeah. putting them together is really valuable. And so a tool that does that, that's something I'm looking for. Um, or I'm looking for something that automates program management, which is I have to work projects for long periods of time. You know, maybe I have an AppSec program and I've got you know, 12 AppSec tools and 200 systems that I need to deploy them to. And I need to keep track of all of this and help me figure out which one to do next. Like that's an area where I might look for a technology to sort of really help me. Um, so those are sort of my, my three broad categories. And then there's a narrow category, which is I have a real problem that just popped up that nobody has ever seen before. And I want something that can actually go find those things. Fair. 
Okay. Right? So, yeah. so that's often the point product. Like, give me a point product to solve that. But the other ones are almost like, give me platforms that make things better. Yeah. I mean, I it just, it feels like, you know, there's so much, I, I forget the study. I, I saw, I used it in a talk a couple of a year or so ago, where something like, you know, for the security tools that, that most organizations, I think they were looking at like fortune 500 companies have, you know, there was something like 60% overlap capability yep. and the average tool was utilized only to 15% of its capabilities. That's alarming to me, right? I mean, if I'm running a security program, you're telling me I'm paying all this money for tools that do the same thing and I'm only using 15% of each? Yep. Yeah, shelfware is a very real problem. You buy a technology that's supposed to go enterprise-wide. Here's actually one of the biggest failings I often see in deploying a new technology is people try to deploy it on their most valuable system first. It makes sense. Like, I want to save the thing that's going to be the highest risk. Well, that is the slowest possible place to do anything new. If you wanted to play new technology, go find a buddy somewhere in the organization that has a low value thing and deploy it there first where you can learn it. You can just get it in and say, hey, what do we want to do? And now um, when you have to deploy it four times in a row because it turns out you had the wrong settings, nobody's <laughs> mad at you. But if you went on that high value application, you keep trying to deploy it. Every time you want to make a change, it takes you forever. But more importantly, Every other application is watching and is saying, yes. I don't want that tool here. It is disrupted for releases. That's, and you'll get to 15% and you're done. Yeah. And that, God, that is like, that's, you know, so stressful to me as well. You know, it's important that you manage the reputation of the tools and the processes and the procedures that you bring in because that directly impacts how people are going to adopt them. And right. I know, you know, and, and you, you actually wrote a blog recently, or maybe I, I, it's your most recent blog on your yeah. site that I, I read, um, to, to be blunt, uh, it's but okay. you were talking about the like top three hidden costs. And I know that, yep. that you, you actually drew a, a connection to how that leads to, you know, that, that stagnation. Yeah. And the, the challenge here when you're sort of deploying something new is every piece of pain that you create is pain that will be reflected back on you in the future, right? If I'm trying to deploy to you and I make your life miserable, the next time I come ask for something, you are going to push that misery right back on me. And it's not punitive. It's you just are looking and saying, I've been burned by you before. I'm going to make it harder for you to burn me again. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's why I just, it, it, it kills me sometimes um, when, Security people don't see that, like you know. Yeah. So I work in this BSO role where I'm my job, and hence the reason for the name of the show. I'm that bridge between the business and the security team, and you know, it, I, I I beg them, like let me be your ally and win you yeah. adoption by taking this business context I'm having, I'm I'm bringing back to you and craft your priorities and and yep. and your objectives to align with that. I'm like, if you can do that part, I'll get all of them singing whatever song or tune you want them to sing. I mean, you know, we, we can do that because they'll be happy. You'll yep. be happy. And my life is a lot less stressful then. Yeah. I'm, I'm really optimistic about the be so role being at some point sort of a, a implicit or explicit requirement for CISOs. 
that until you have been embedded in a business and tried to deal with all of the BS out of a central InfoSec team and make it adapt to a business, I don't know that you have any business creating policies out of the center. You have no idea how much I'm feeling that right now. Like, like that is exactly where I'm at. And that was for me, that was always my hardest job is I'd have somebody on my team who would say, well, we just need to make a policy that says X. And I'm like, hell no. Yes, I know that we have an auditor that wants a policy that says that, but we don't write policies that people don't follow. You know, my, my general rule, and here's my takeaway. If you want to implement a new policy in your company, go find some people who already like you and ask them to live under that policy before it's written. Move it forward. Because if you can't get your allies to move it forward, then you should recognize that everybody's going to resist. Yeah. But the best policies are one that you write after 80% of the business is already doing it. And you only use it as a cudgel against the last 20%. Yes. Because if it's oh. a good practice, people will be like, oh, you're implementing this not just because it's a policy, but because there's a real risk. Yeah, we'll make the change. And then you're just codifying the solution that you created for your business as a policy. Oh, you mean we don't shape behavior by creating policies to tell people how we want them to behave? Oh, we do shape behavior. We just do not shape it in the way that we think we're about to shape it. <laughs> exactly. It's, how, how can I make you ignore my policy and, yeah. and get more risk acceptances? Okay, yeah, let me write a, a, yeah. a standard that doesn't fit. You yeah, know. like how many people, here's a good one to ask security professionals. You probably get a lot of training that comes out of HR and legal that's these awful video trainings that you know require you to maintain focus on that browser, you can't, if you click away, the video pauses, there's like a stupid questionnaire at the end of it. And it's the same training that you have gotten at every employer you've ever had in your life. Like it's, whether it's sexual harassment training or code of ethics or whatever. And how many of you dread those? Probably the answer is everyone. Um, how many of you try to game the system? Like I literally will have a two laptops and the second one is running the training while I'm doing real work on the first one. Um, and if it doesn't let me turn off the volume, I just plug in headphones and don't listen to them. And every so often glance over, oh, I'm supposed to take the quiz. Let me take the quiz. So you do that, right? You have done this adaptation against the business. Well, when you roll out security awareness training, what do you think everybody's doing to your security awareness training? Exactly. Right. And they're saying just what you're thinking, which is, this is a part of the business that is wasting time that I could be using more productively for something else. Yeah. I mean, if I can pass the quiz without watching the video, all right, clearly I understand the compliance needs because believe me, I have a highly regulated right. industry that I work in, you know, you have to spend a certain amount of time in these trainings, but okay. But it, you it, don't. The compliance requirement in almost every regime is annually, every employee must receive security awareness training. You can literally satisfy that by sending them to a web page that no scrolling is required that says, we're required to give you security awareness training. Here's three paragraphs about training. Here's why it matters. Here's some links. If you want more training, click here to acknowledge that you have been trained. Yeah. That's and that works. I mean, there are some, uh, honestly, I mean, I speak for, you know, not, not security awareness, but yep. other training where we do have those time requirements, but yeah, I mean, you know, or find other ways. Like there's, yeah. and that's my point. Like there's and gotta separate, be something better. Separate the checkbox compliance of every year, everybody has to do this. We literally had a web page that was a cron job that would look in the database and say, oh, you haven't done it in 11 months. I'll send you email to go do it now. 
like 98% compliance on the company with no overhead. And it was literally show up here and click the link. If you think you're good, you're good. If not, here's where you can get more training. And then we could spend our resources doing meaningfully targeted training to developers to say, let's teach you to do secure code development. Yeah. To executive admins, let's teach you about the attacks that will happen to your executives. Nice. Well, cool. So I'm going to change gears because okay. I want to make sure we get to this last topic before we run out of time. And that is your work at Wild Ventures. Yep. Right. So one of the reasons why I'm really excited to have you on the show today is because you have kind of that that dual perspective. You've been the CISO, seeing you know what what they're bringing, what different vendors are bringing to the market, what they're trying to get you to buy. Yep. Um, you understand. You've been in the vendor side where you've been part of that marketing org a little bit and whatever. You mentioned that earlier. So what about now when you're on that? that venture side, you're on the, the the funding side of things and you're looking at startups. I mean, what are some of the things you're looking for or, you know, you want to see in a startup that's like someone that, all right, that's something I think we should, we should put some money into. Yep. So we're a seed stage fund. So for folks who don't understand that we are the first money that somebody will see, right? And we'll probably do a ride along to maintain our equity stake in an A or maybe a B round. That's it. So we're very different perspective than people who are going to come in at the A, B, C, or later rounds who are looking for viable businesses already that they just want that their investment will help them grow and hyperscale. So that's one set of the VC world that I'm aware of, uh, but I'm not living it. So the seed world is very different because what you are looking for is people and an idea and a market. Right. And the market is often one that doesn't yet exist, which is the fun challenge because a seed stage company is not going to have a viable product at all for a year. And that viable product is not something that's going to be making a ton of money. You know, maybe it's two years until they have something that can scale enough to start making money. So we're trying to figure out like, what is the market going to want in two years? Do we have people who can go execute on it? You usually want to see in a founding team, somebody that really grokks business and executive function and somebody who is a deep technical founder. Like you'd okay. like them, you know, to be 80, 20, probably, you know, both of them should be technical. Um, you don't want a, an early founder who is just a business person who doesn't understand their technology. You know, they should be able to explain <laughs> that. Um, and you know, but they're, they have an approach that is, seems to be viable that they can learn. That's actually a really key thing when you're doing seed stage investment is their first idea is probably a bad one. It's near a really good one, but it's probably not the idea you want them to commit to. So when you put them in front of prospective customers, which is a thing we do for you know everybody that we're talking to, before we give them money, they're going to meet with uh, about a dozen CISOs who are going to give them brutal, honest feedback. And we want to see how do they adapt to the feedback? Right. If do they listen to all of it and keep pivoting their idea? Well, that's probably not the right thing. Do they refuse to listen to any of it? That's also not the right thing. But do they listen where it's relevant? I can think of at least one of our companies that had come in, you know, years ago, and their first idea was this amazingly complicated idea that seemed like <laughs> really cool on paper, and you could see why they liked it. Uh, and I was actually the CISO at the time who, who looked at it and said, "But if you're going to build that idea," To do that, you have to do like these 12 things along the way. And that first one, there's a viable company in that first idea. 
right? And they basically, they said they canceled their meetings and they came back like two weeks later and they had a whole new idea because they okay. hadn't realized that the amount of work it would take to do that first step would lead to a viable company. And they're one of the viable businesses in our portfolio that's you know, doing very well right now. Awesome. And that's kind of what I was getting as I was hearing you. It's like, okay, I, I was going to ask, what are the things that you wish they did differently? I think you already answered that. Yeah. And it was really just, you know, be willing to, especially, I mean, you know, I, I know your rep from your reputation that like, if you were coming and you were looking at something, I was making, you were telling me something like, I'm going to listen. Right. I mean, you've and been there. We want to hear them but, listen and make the right decision about adapting. Yeah. Uh, and then what we do that I think is, is relatively interesting from the outside that most people don't realize is a lot of VCs are basically, we hand you money and we want a seat on the board. We recognize that when we hand someone money as a seed round investment, they're not a company. There are a couple of people, right? We make them incorporate, but that doesn't really make you a company. So our organization includes a marketing team, an HR team, a business development team. You know, myself as an operating partner, I'm usually on the post-investment side. And our job is to surround you with people who can do job functions that you haven't staffed yet. So all of your early marketing is actually done you know, 90% by us. And as you start to build out more marketing capability, you then stop using us. Yeah. And you know, when you're hiring, like we have a head of HR who's going to help oversee your recruiters and help do your hiring until you're big enough to justify investing in HR. It's almost like this reverse private equity model. Instead of you know yeah. replacing all of your people, we just provide you people and ask you to replace them. No, I mean, that, that seems like the perfect option because I mean, where do we struggle? And I love the fact that, you know, someone like you, I would love to see more of that for non-security companies where there is an advisory CISO involved, yeah. right? And that's that's something I feel like we're, we're, we miss because yeah, you look at most startups, I mean, the CISO is not the first thing they're thinking about. It's probably not even the... 50th or the hundredth thing they're thinking about. I mean, that that's down the road. And then we, then we're like, okay, by the time the CISO comes in, all these security, bad security decisions, if you will, have been made. And yep. now we're already behind the, that proverbial, you know, tech debt idea of, Hey, we've, we've got a bunch of really risky situations here. We got to fix and it's going to be expensive and time consuming. And we're not going to want to spend money on it because we're still innovating and, building market position and everything else like crap, you know? Yeah. So I, I love that. Although one of my big optimisms is the back end technical debt around security seems to be much less of a problem as everybody has moved to cloud services. Yeah. Because is migration is a real thing. You've outsourced the security to these companies. It's not always perfect. But it is almost always better than, well, we bought technology that we had to deploy internally and we just like made it open to the world because that was the fastest thing to do. And every time there was a bug, we took off any security settings. Like I'm so happy seeing companies that are truly cloud native and not just they're building their product in the cloud. I mean, they're running their whole company in the cloud. Like people have a laptop and that's your only equipment. Some don't even have that. Some are already using like, you know, virtual workspaces and stuff yep. too. So no, that's, I, that is promising. And maybe, you know, that's where I think cloud might give us, you know, some of the promise that we've been waiting for, but yes, uh, absolutely. So, well, unfortunately we we've come to that time. I mean, there's so much more, I'm sure we could discuss for hours, but, uh, and I 
think I say that every week. That's becoming kind of a cliche for me, but it's the truth. Um, we have some awesome guests here. And Andy, you, you've been terrific. Uh, this has been really insightful. Frank, I see your comments over there. Unfortunately, your questions came in right after the topic switched. So that's why we never got to them. But uh, we'll, we'll hit you up offline. Um, for everybody out there, thank you so much for tuning in. Yet another amazing episode of Securing Bridges. Uh, super excited to have had Andy today. I hope you guys enjoyed. Reminder, this episode, like all our episodes, will be ready and available on podcast format uh, two to three days after today. Uh, you can see it Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, whatever your favorite podcast platform is, we are probably out there. So, uh, you know, like, subscribe, all those happy things they always say, and tune in next week. Andy, thanks again. Really appreciate having you here. Melissa, thanks for having me. All right. Take care, everybody. We'll uh, see you next week on another episode of Security Visions. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Securing Bridges podcast with Alyssa Miller. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.